From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, a taste of this week's Net Zero Conference, why solar cars may have a sunny future, one man's learning journey through the ESG landscape, and 100 days before COP26, why we're optimistic. It's a rosy scenario this week on 350. It's July 30th, 2021. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey is a midsummer's night dream herself, Green Biz <laughs> Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Very creative introduction. Hello, Joel. It's great well. to chat with you. It's uh, lovely here in Midland Park, New Jersey, a typical New Jersey summer with lots of tomatoes and produce. Yeah. And we produced a amazing event this week, uh, Verge Net Zero. Uh, mm-hmm. Our mm-hmm. uh, let's see fourth or fifth event this year. <laughs> I've lost track, um, and uh, it was it was amazing. Uh, Jim Giles, uh, our colleague, put together a really stellar uh, lineup of of speakers and sessions and and networking opportunities. And um, I just have to say, the Green Biz team continually, every time we do an event, did I mention this is the fifth one this year? Yep. <laughs> we raise the bar. It they just get better. I'm so proud of our team. Um, it was really great. I too. I just, I am in awe of the creativity of our production team because virtual events, we're all quite, quite uh, understandably getting a little bit leery of them. Um, Maybe leery too, but uh, this just, there were so many wonderful visual things that happened. Our, our, our conference director, Jim was in all so these places, <laughs> just like where? Yeah. How do you get there? Where in the world is Jim Giles? Is kind of where, it was. <laughs> it but it was, was it was just really effective and 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 um, and very engaging. So thank you, because um, I know we're all tired, and thank you for being so engaging. The audience was fantastic, tons of wonderful chat. So yeah, yeah, great. <sighs> well, that was uh, that was part of the weekend review. But let's get to the rest of the weekend review. To start us with another net zero topic, um, which was your terrific piece on net zero's big challenge for small business. This was one of those uh, articles. For, uh, first of all, it was a lengthy uh, treatise from you on on the the role that small businesses should be playing, but also the role that larger corporations should be playing in helping these companies get there. Just so much to um, to appreciate and parse here, but this. When I read your piece, when I was editing it earlier this week, I had one of those epiphany moments, and I know I shared this with you uh, in, in many ways before, but uh, I just thought, well, yes, this the supply chain, the scope three that so many companies are struggling, larger companies are struggling with right now. This is the scope three challenge. This is the small business, you know, the entrepreneurs. How do we help get them the climate knowledge, first of all, because that's that's a big part of it. But how do we help them get started? And so I loved the fact that you wrote about this topic. Um, I, I'm wondering what triggered it for you. Well, 
couple things. First of all, this is an old topic. You know, everything old is new again. And uh, this whole idea <laughs> of how do we bring small businesses into the fold for sustainability in general, let alone for this specific net zero challenge. Uh, and we can think about it. Uh, the big companies, you know, they're they're not all in, but they're many of them are in, and the, some of them are all in. Uh, they've set you know hundreds, if that probably hundreds and hundreds of companies have set uh, net zero targets, and these are big players. And we've been writing about and speaking about those uh, almost ad nauseum over the past uh, year or two. Uh, but smaller firms, they don't. They're not there yet, and for good reason. I mean, they they don't have the resources, the personnel, the budgets, the time, the opportunities. They don't own their own facilities, for example. They so it's really hard to make uh, upgrades for energy efficiency or other things. They don't have the power of the purse, so the large, you know, the ability to you know buy things at scale, or therefore driving things down. And yet, you know, half the economy, certainly half the employment is made up of small businesses, which the U.S. Small Business Administration defines as companies with under 500 employees. The World Bank globally says 90% of all businesses are SME, small and mid-sized enterprises, which it defines as those with up to 250 employees. Whatever the number, it's a big number, 32 million in the U.S. alone. And so we can't get where we need to go without bringing them into the fold. And I really wanted to look at that. And the other piece of it, Heather, is that I've started to see more and more resources available for them. And and I had the opportunity, I guess, uh, two weeks ago now, I know it was last week, to uh, moderate a, a webinar put on by a group called the Climate Collaborative, which is a se- several hundred companies in the natural products industry. And to talk about something called the SME Climate Hub, which is this great resource that's put together by the We Mean Business Coalition, International Chamber of Commerce, and some others. So anyway, it was just seeing this unaddressed need with some beginnings of some resources. And hey, that's a story. It is a story. And I. this is one of my favorite topics just as a journalist. I, I My book focuses on exactly on this, finding your niche as an entrepreneur and I just really am gonna, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to digging into this more um, entrepreneurship, creativity. That's what small businesses do well and they do it quickly. So yeah, yeah but, 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 be. but to your point, yeah. many of these companies are part of big company supply chains. Mm-hmm. They're, they're mm-hmm. the s- small parts manufacturers, the warehouses, the, the, you know, all the supply, all the parts, you know, for, from your, you know, vehicles or, phone or computer, you know, not all of them, but many of them come from smaller firms. And there's an opportunity here as big companies try to zero out their footprint to, uh, and they're going to have to engage their suppliers. And a lot of those are these small firms. So Mm -hmm. at this Mm -hmm. webinar that I hosted, we had uh, Salesforce, who we've talked about on this uh, program a number of times, but specifically about their sustainability exhibit, which is something they put in their procurement contracts, every procurement contract for their thousands of suppliers going forward, saying that they're going to uh, requiring suppliers to set a science-based goal and do a number of other things or face some financial penalties. And um, so that's one that's more of a stick, although there's also a number of carrots that Salesforce has created in terms of some open source resources that they've made available to their their small businesses and to uh, every small business to do these, to, to actually execute on some of these things from the small business perspective. Anyway, 
we don't spend enough time talking to small businesses. That's uh, isn't, you know, hasn't been our bread and butter as a company. You know, we work with some of the world's biggest companies, but I just think this is a lost opportunity for all of us. And we need to spend more time there. So I'll get off my small, mid-sized soapbox. Directive acknowledged. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, I'm going to turn the tables on you. And, and a really interesting story that you did this week, Heather, about reusable wine bottles. So I, I, before we get into the story, um, I just want to know, what were you thinking? What were you drinking? Now, what was what I drinking? You, why did you take this story on? It doesn't feel like the typical Heather Clancy tech-focused, I don't know, story. What, 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 well, what drove you to do this? Okay, well, there is an element of tech to this, but what was I thinking about? Um, well, I have covered quite a bit of the, the reusable packaging um, component of the circular economy processes that we've been exploring, of course, for many years now. I, I, I want to say many years. It's actually like, I'm thinking like at least five or six years we've been talking about the circular economy, probably more. But anyway, um, what triggered this for me was uh, uh, there was a startup in, in the New York City area called uh, Fresh Bowl. Okay. So they have been um, piloting salads in in use, reusable glass containers and uh, they were doing this in the new york area small business trying something new do, doing pretty well um and then boom um COVID hit right so this company had also sort of been thinking about like what other things can we put into reusable containers and then they had been already exploring the idea of wine so there are um it probably as a californian you don't realize this because you drink california wines but there are quite a few new york vineyards um, in the Hudson Valley um, and on on the tip of Long Island that do things like Chardonnay and you know they're they're not as popular and they're very much smaller than than the ones in California many of them are and so they started working with some of the vineyards to pilot basically the idea of a reusable wine bottle so people drink a bottle of wine then what do they do they throw they toss the, the wine bottle into their recycling bin where it may or may not get um, handled. The bottle, as it turns out, is the single biggest contributor of the industry footprint. There's about 4.3 billion of them that circulate in the U.S. every year. And um, we don't really know what happens to them. Only one third of, of what Americans throw away actually gets really recycled in glass. You know, you could, we don't really know how much glass is recycled. So anyway, so that's sort of the backstory. But this company, Good Goods, that, that's what they, what they call themselves now in, in this particular uh, iteration, as well as a distributor, uh, Gotham Project. Um, Gotham Project is a company that represents a number of vineyards in New York again, but also in France. They import some. And they have been testing uh, cask wine, so wine on tap. And they also, at the same time during the pandemic, thought, well, why not chest bottles? So that's the very long backstory. And why wine? Why was I interested? Well, I drink wine. <laughs> so I just thought, well, lots of people drink wine. Uh, and, you know, it's, some, it's a good conversation. Uh, when you walk into a a liquor store and you want to buy a bottle of wine, you often speak with the uh, the retailer owner. Um, unless you know a particular bottle, you might go up and ask, you know, what, why should I buy this bottle? And now these these retailers have a different talking point. So there's a small number of them in, in the New York area and in some other states like New Jersey, um, Massachusetts, are going to be in Vermont and so forth. But yeah. 
Well, I I want to I want to find out you know how about the digital component and also you know what are the odds of this scaling? Um, but I first want to tell you that you know the average winery in the United States. How many employees do they have? What do you want to, want to guess? Six. Whoa. Where did you get that? It's actually 6.9. <laughs> I just that's, guess. That's I figured you'd Not come bad, in much, huh? Should much I higher. Should I play a lottery? <laughs> oh, come on. You can do better than six when it's 6.9. No, that was great. I was impressed. Um, but yeah, let's get into the the, the technology here. What, what What's the uh, big deal? So the big deal. So now why are the retailers doing this? One is because obviously they they want to have a conversation with their customers. So the companies themselves, both Good Goods and Gotham Project, are using uh, labels with QR codes on them to help track the idea of, of this bottle, to help basically check in and check out bottles. And that QR code can become part of the loyalty program at a retailer or a, or a vineyard, right, a winery. Um, it, it, makes for a direct to consumer relationship that that hasn't necessarily existed before. And it helps uh, us understand where the bottles are going, where they're being bought, how many, you know, which types of bottles are being returned, um, what's not being returned and why not, you know, how how can um, this be this be made better. And the QR code, which many of us, I mean, if you've gone to a restaurant recently, that's it became incredibly popular again during COVID-19 because people didn't want to have paper menus. So this technology that's been out there for a very long time that kind of wasn't really catching on all of a sudden really did catch on. So this that component really lets them um, gather the information they, they need quickly to figure out whether this is working or not. So, you know, I, I they're small, they're niche projects. Um, maybe they'll stay niche. I don't know, but I just love the fact that they're trying this out. Um, and I love the fact that it's small vineyards that are participating. It's, um, it gives them an opportunity to make a difference. Um, and that was, you know, the reason that, that, uh, the one that the good goods is working with called wild arc farm. That's the reason they're involved is, is they, they like the sustainability story. They don't like throwing the bottles, you know, that are being thrown out every year. They, they produce about 20,000 of them. Um, and eh, yeah. So anyway, I it just, yes, not a normal Heather story. I just thought it was a cool, cool venture. Yeah, it is cool. Well, speaking of cool and something you don't want to be engaging in it right after you've had wine from reusable bottles. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's autonomous. <laughs> yeah, unless it's autonomous or cars. And and this is a piece that uh, we ran this week by Liz Morrison, our mobility analyst, uh, about uh, a company, uh, a German company called Sono, S-O-N-O, or Sono Motors, that's making a, a solar car that, you know, all right, before you start laughing and get up, you know, get yourself off the floor and rolling around, this is actually... Uh, a, a pretty interesting vehicle that uh, Market Watch said is giving Tesla a run for its money, at least in terms of the cash pre-orders. Uh, and, and this is something that could go public soon. So this is a car. It, it's uh, sold in Europe, available right now in Europe, or mm -hmm. becoming available. Uh, the current model is encased with 248 solar cells using, obviously, proprietary technology. And the, the, the cells are integrated into the body of the car. Uh, and uh, it, the range is about 190 miles per charge. And what's interesting is that um, the company, uh, the base price is $30,000. Yeah. 
price right. to sell. And they've, they've gotten 13,000 pre-orders, uh, th uh, over a th almost a third of a billion dollars worth of pre-orders, uh, primarily in Europe. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, it's one of those things that before, you know, you, you hear the sound of it and it's like, yeah, right. But you start to look at what they're doing and the technology, uh, cobalt, nickel, manganese free battery, which uh, it's called lithium ion phosphate battery, which you can read about. It's pretty interesting, don't you think? I do. Um, I thought it was interesting. It looks like it's a pretty, you know, like the pictures. I was trying to figure out <laughs> when I was staring at the picture going, okay, where are the, you know, where are the cells? I, I couldn't really figure it out myself. But um, a hundred, I think one of the challenges, although in, in the US for it would be the range, right? It's like 190 miles per charge. Not Which, shabby for the first generation. It's not first shabby generation. for a first generation. And what does that mean? Like when you're driving, like, it stands to reason that as you're driving, if you're on a long road trip, there's sun shining, hopefully, and like you could be charging while you're driving. I don't actually have any idea if you can do that. I don't know if it, if it has to be actually charged in a stationary or off, um, uh, you know, mode. I have no idea, but I, I suspect know, it is because yeah, because the battery is has what's called bidirectional charging, which is uh, so many EVs these days do, which means you can both take. Uh, it, it can both take power off the grid, but also feed power into the grid. And so so this obviously can plug in as well, but obviously you don't have to. And 190 miles, you know, we think the average, at least in the U.S., the average uh, commuter is something like 30 or 40 miles uh, round trip uh, and a lot are much shorter than that. So, you know, yes, going on a long trip could be a challenge, but that's true with any EV. And by the way, there are cars not to tout 190 miles, but uh, uh, range. But but there are a lot of cars that have a lot less than that. Uh, uh, sort of disappointingly, I was hoping to, uh, as I my car is eight or nine years old, to get a a mini uh, EV. I have a Mini Cooper convertible, and I love it. And I would waiting for the electric version of that. But they're the one Mini they have out is like a 110 mile range, and it's like so. But somehow they're making a market out of that, I guess. So this isn't bad, as I said, for the first generation. I'm sure it'll get better. Yeah, I, I agree, and I, I, I do, I do want to see how it goes in Europe. I think um, they do have. By the way, I think one of the things to note is their team: BMW, Nissan, Chrysler, Daimler. These are people that know how to sell cars. So I think these are these are graduates of those yeah, companies. Those companies are not directly involved. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think. Yeah, it's a great. I, I love that uh, Liz Morrison, our mobility analyst, uh, brought this to, to light, and I'm looking forward to, to hearing more about it. I think the production model is expected in what 2023. I think they're going to deliver. Yeah, um, you know, so we'll see. Yet another technology that will enable fossil fuel vehicles to drive off into the sunset. Another story we ran this week was the debut piece by one of our colleagues, Grant Harrison, who's been a green biz for about three years, but who this month ascended to become our first green finance and ESG analyst. And he introduced himself with a piece called My ESG Learning Journey, reporting on how he spent the months leading up to his new assignment. Grant joins me now. Hey, Grant. Hey, Joel. It's great to be here. I actually, you have a little bit of history with this podcast. 
I do. Yeah. Tying the, the full circle, um, discovered Green Biz three and a half years ago while pacing in small circles in the city of Oxford, um, looking for what to do after grad school. Heard your voice here on Green Biz 350. So it's fantastic to join you. <laughs> That's great. I love that. Well, here you are. And talk a little bit about this learning journey. Why did you do it? What did you do? How many people did you talk to? Give us a flavor. Yeah, so I um, took a sample of about 10 to 15 conversations that I, I wove into this piece, uh, many of whom are advisors to our Greenfin event and other friends of GreenBiz that obviously precede me. And kind of as a start on my journey, I I'm, imagine I'm not the only person whose LinkedIn feed has seen a flood of freshly minted ESG experts as of late, whether they're hired or self-appointed, given the massive demand that I know you've covered recently, Joel, for ESG professionals. Um, but if you're newer to entering to the ESG field, there are ample signals saying, yes, this is a totally unprecedented moment. There are reasons to be jovial, but still still persist, um, especially around things like disclosure requirements. Like this is truly unprecedented and massive change in the field. But those who work in sustainability and green business and green finance more broadly also seem to be eternally optimistic and hopeful in order to, to make any gains, especially in a field where there's sometimes one step forward, two steps back, maybe another half a step forward. So for me, it was kind of assessing like, is this really as monumental as it seems? And the takeaway is for someone like me who's a newer entrant is yes, absolutely. Um, and I see myself as a proxy for many of the folks who are new to the field in the green biz audience and, and beyond, um, that this really is a new horizon for ESG investing in green finance. So this, this optimism is not the whistling in the dark, um, hoping things will work out kind of optimism. This is real measurable ground getting covered kind of, kind of change. So. Well, you certainly took uh, a lot of your uh, cohorts and, and all of us along for the journey in this piece. What surprised you when you came out of this uh, these ten or fifteen conversations? Yeah, so I, I would say on the the and most of the takeaway I'd say was positive. The positive surprise, I guess, I can't, maybe I came into this kind of cynical that maybe all the the headlines referencing massive movement and change in ESG were overblown. So I think the the first surprise was like actually yes, wow, this is as big of a deal as the the Mike Wallace's um, of the world told me it is. Um, on the more disappointed or frustrated side, which I really don't think was the bulk of this, but have to touch on it, the main frustration, I guess, is kind of the same feeling as leaving the first humanities class in college, where the world is painted as an exceedingly complex place, but that the root of most problems is abstract, but also quite simple, which is basically some people have power. They're, they're usually not inclined to let go of that, whether it's money, cultural capital, whatever it is. And that behind that entrenched power is this amorphous thing called culture, which is hard to measure and adjust. Um, obviously, there's plenty of academic fields that problematize and pick apart culture. But I guess some part of me was hoping that the crux of the problem in ESG investing and sustainable finance could be d done through a tweak here and a tweak there to existing measurements and analysis and processes. But a lot of what I heard is, no, these deeply entrenched myths about ESG investing like that ESG investing uh, comes at the expense of investment performance or that only millennials care about this ESG thing and maybe it's a fad or, or all the rest. They're deeply tied in with a culture in the investment industry that at the top maybe hasn't fully digested the importance of what ESG holistically is trying to achieve. Maybe they're not entirely in the tent as, as a lot of the sustainability community uses to describe their, their space and the tent they're trying to grow to include other professionals and other stakeholders. But I guess, yeah, the, the bottom line on that was it's just a bit frustrating because you'd hope that the demonstration of reliable and, and very often outperforming returns from ESG funds, there's plenty of folks across the spectrum, Morningstar and others who are making this 
is simple and evident, but that culture doesn't always respond to glaring facts, which obviously we've got plenty of other examples of that in our, our political realm at the moment. But sure. Uh, yeah. One of the things you did in your piece is you talked about a sort of a hypothetical word cloud of the conversations you've had in the past few weeks. Uh, one of the terms that uh, you said would show up in large type is Groundhog Day, which I don't think would be a surprise to too many people who have been in the ESG field for more than a minute. But one of the other ones was was snake oil. And that kind of jumped out at me, so to speak. Um, why is snake oil sort of a recurring theme in the conversations you had? Yeah, good question. I, I would say in the, the aforementioned word cloud, Groundhog Day would be slightly larger than, than snake oil, but still um, a persistent thread. But yeah, for snake snake oil, um, it's kind of surprised to hear that myself, actually. But I guess it's not a total surprise that when there's a white hot market for anything, snake oil purveyors smell opportunity and chase it. So I didn't dig too deep into who exactly is making the snake oil and what they're making it out of. Um, but it seemed like the, the kind of snake oil thread tied in with some of the things that honestly seem a little bit inevitable to the private sector, which is competition and differentiation. So I heard a number of times in these conversations, a frustration with some of the new products and tools and standards and frameworks that many of the folks working in this space are trying to solve for by making a unified set of tools and principles and standards to work around that this, these new tools, especially from a lot of investors to measure performance of business operations, um, environmental impact, governance or the like, is actually adding to some of the confusion, the alphabet soups that people in ESG oftentimes lament, rather than necessarily contributing to solving the overall challenges that the industry as a whole faces. So not a total surprise, but um, definitely was, was tied in deeply with that snake oil thread. So you're on your journey now uh, within GreenBiz to uh, you're going to be building GreenFin 22 coming up uh, next June. We're, we're locking down the dates and the place, but it looks like it's going to be in a very large East Coast city known as a financial hub and in that neighborhood near that financial hub. So <laughs> stay tuned for that. Uh, Grant, we're just so excited to have you on, and to be on this journey with you. And um I really encourage everyone to read this piece, uh, My ESG Learning Journey. It's just a great insight into somebody who's sort of stepped into this world and, you know, want to see what it's all about and let us know what he found out. Grant Harrison, our newly minted green finance and ESG analyst. Thanks so much, Grant. Thank you, Joel. Really appreciate it. It's that time of year again, Earth Overshoot Day, the date in the calendar year when humans exceed their annual budget of natural capital, took place on July 29th. But this year, the Global Footprint Network, the organization behind Earth Overshoot Day, is taking things a bit further. We're now at about 100 days until COP26 begins in Glasgow, Scotland. And this week, Global Footprint Network, along with Drawdown and the Scottish Environmental Protection Agency, launched 100 Days of Possibility. The goal to showcase that change is possible and that our own actions are essential for our own thriving. To learn more, I dialed up Matisse Wackernagel, the president of Global Footprint Network. Hey, Matisse. Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's always a pleasure. So for an organization that often has a kind of a dour message, this seems pretty, well, positive. Why the optimism? We are just engineers looking at the world. We describe the world how it is. 
it's a spaceship Earth that regenerates biomass, and then we can compare how much we use compared to how much we have. And then we also know it's possible to do much better. So that's why we're looking at the 100 days of possibility, what possibilities that already exist. Because I think the biggest misconception we are facing is that we should wait until we have an agreement. While in reality, we are entering a storm of climate change and resource constraints and not preparing our own boats is just insanity. So what's going to happen with these 100 days? So we are basically doing like an advent calendar with COP being Christmas and there are 100 days to that event. And so every day you can open a little door and see another possibility. For example, one is a more efficient cement that uses, actually not just a more efficient cement, more efficient concrete that uses aggregate from recycled building materials and also uses more CO2 efficient cement. And so if we use this kind of concrete around the world, we'd move Earth Overshoot Day nearly three days. So what happens or what do you want to see happen when someone opens one of these little doors? Essentially, we want to give a sense that possibilities abound. It's totally possible to move to date. I think what's missing in the conversation is recognizing how essential it is for each one of us as a city, as a company, as a country. If you don't prepare yourself for the predictable future, you will be suffering a lot of consequences. But you shouldn't be stopped by thinking there are no opportunities to actually <laughs> improve your situation. Plenty exist that are financially viable and technically possible. So I'm not sure what's holding us back. So who's your message for all this? I mean, I, I like the optimism. I like the can-do spirit. Um, I like the idea of possibilities. But who are you trying to influence here? I mean, in the end, all of us are decision makers as individuals. <laughs> I mean, we are our own household, whether we run a city, whether we're in a city council, whether we run a company, we are part of a company. In the end, the question is, are we in the game or are we just watching? And all of us are in the game. And I think it's kind of this mind shift to recognize it's not about waiting for the others to act, but rather let's prepare ourselves. Because if we are ready, it's like with COVID, if we prepare ourselves, if we protect ourselves, it's better for everybody. And particularly, it's better for ourselves. So you want people to be building the boat to, to be able to survive this storm. Talk a little bit about what that boat wants to look like. We both live in Oakland. And so the question for Oakland is not how nice can Oakland be for the world, but how do we get Oakland ready for the world we can predict? And the world we can predict is one that will operate within very few decades without fossil fuels. And it also will live in more extreme weather. So as we build infrastructure today, the question becomes, is this infrastructure that will serve us? Or is it infrastructure that will become less useful? So whether you're, for example, a house owner, having a house that is super energy efficient, that doesn't depend on fossil fuels, uh, that's going to be a much more valuable house. Uh, if you continue to expand the highway infrastructure, we invest in aspects, in, in, in assets that will be less valuable in the future. Do you worry at all that there's a, the, the sort of an unintended consequence could be sort of a bunker mentality where people say, okay, storm is coming, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hunker down, take care of myself, and that's all I really care about? 
I mean, there's always this danger, but on some level, if you don't see yourself in the game and it's actually necessary for yourself as well, you will not see the action that is necessary. But luckily, most actions necessary, for example, for an Oakland to prepare itself for the future we can anticipate, also will significantly reduce resource demand on the planet. Resource security is becoming a key factor for long-term success. And that's good for you, and it's good for the world. So how does this all roll up to COP in the first week of November? Uh, what do you want to see happen at COP that may have been informed by the 100 days of possibility? International cooperation is incredibly important to set common goals and learn from each other and recognize that we have a challenge. But in the end, it's up to us to take action. So I think the worst outcome for COP would be that people think we just have to wait for COP and COP will bring the miracle answer for us all and then we may start to act. Actually, independent of what's being decided at COP, we need to prepare ourselves. It's actually even reverse. If COP will not be successful, which it could be, then the pressure on us all will even be higher. So you have to run even faster if you want to have a chance to have a good life in the future. And I think that's the misconception we, we want to uh, erode that to wait is good waiting is not good it's hurting you so where does somebody learn more about these hundred days of possibilities and where do you where do you get the advent calendar <laughs> yeah you can come to hundred days of possibility.org or just to overshootday.org which is our main website for earth overshoot day and there it is well, we'll look forward to that, and we'll be featuring some of the possibilities on GreenBiz in the coming weeks. Matisse Vakernagel is the president of the Global Footprint Network here in Oakland, California. Thanks so much, Matisse. Thank you, Joel. It's a pleasure. All right, Heather, you, as you always do so well when we have events, as you pull some audio from some of our uh, main stage, I think uh, these are main stage presentations. What do you got for us this time around from Verge Net Zero? These are all main stage presentations, yes. These are early on the conference. We will have some more in the next edition of our podcast, but here goes. First up is Kate Cullen. She's a PhD student in the Energy and Resources Group at UC Berkeley, and she's also an associate at the Oxford Net Zero program. She set up the conference, and one of the things that really jumped out for, from her presentation was when she addressed the three biggest challenges of moving to net zero. So here is Kate Cullen. The three biggest challenges I see ahead of us are one, keeping a laser focus on immediate action and having emissions by 2030, two, transforming the way we approach offsets, and three, folding equity into the core of net zero roadmaps. On immediate action, I'm sure you're aware by now that we're in a decisive decade with only eight and a half years left before the critical milestone of 2030. If your organization doesn't have a net zero plan yet, what are you doing? Set it today. The new climate economy is here and you're missing out on the transformation of our lifetimes. And if you have a plan, this is the moment today to strengthen it and take stronger action to ensure you're gaining the full benefits of being a front runner and accelerating that ambition loop for everyone's benefit. Moving to the offsetting challenge. 
This is one of the largest technological and governance challenges that we face. In our research, we found that only 53 out of the nearly 4,000 entities that we surveyed plan to reach net zero without the use of offsets. Only 127 entities have set some form of condition on the offsets they plan to use. This is a clear alarm bell that we need more transparency on the planned use of offsets, as well as rigor in our approach. Drawing from the Oxford principles for net zero aligned offsetting, we know that offsets first and foremost must be used sparingly. But when they are used for the hardest to abate emissions, they must be additional, scientifically verified, and increasingly becoming permanent. Now to the equity challenge. What does it mean to operationalize equity, to set a target, quote, in light of equity, as the Paris Agreement says? Today, it's rare to see an entity grapple with their historic responsibility and set a pledge that represents a fair share of emissions reductions and use of removals. It's also rare to see funding and planning for a just transition actually included in a net zero plan. We don't have a shared definition of what equity means on all scales in a net zero pledge. And we have very few real world models to build this definition from. This is why I'm leading an Oxford Berkeley research group to do a deep dive on this question. And I would love to hear from you to discuss further. And next up is Debbie Raffel. She's the director of the San Francisco Department of the Environment. Um, great, it was a great presentation. That included a induction cooking demonstration, which <laughs> came out of nowhere, but it was, was greatly appreciated. Uh, but she spent the bulk of the time talking about the, the city of San Francisco's climate action strategy, which I love how she, she really focused on something that everyone can do. So here's Debbie Raffel. Everyone has to understand what their role is in achieving carbon reductions. And we can't speak in very wonky terms. We need language that people can relate to. So we have summarized our climate action strategy in four words, 0, 80, 100 roots. 0, 80, 100 roots. Zero, that's zero waste to landfill or incineration and zero toxics so we can have a circular economy. 80, 80% 80 of trips in sustainable modes, that's low carbon transportation, getting out of your car, onto transit, riding a bike or walking. 100, 100% renewable energy. That's not just having renewable electricity, but that's getting off of all fossil fuels, getting off of diesel, gasoline and natural gas. I like to say that 0, 80, 100, that's how we do less bad in the world. But roots, roots is how we heal the planet. Because right now there's too much carbon in the air. We need to pull carbon dioxide out. And the way we do that is by supporting biodiversity, by planting trees, by helping our parks prosper, and by taking our compost and putting it on agricultural and rangeland to heal the soils. So zero, 80, 100 roots, that is our climate action strategy. That is something that everyone can do. I also love that we continue to include youth activists on our main stage and uh, this time was no exception. And I 
wanted to flag a, a part of the conversation from Net Zero Hour uh, that focused on advice for businesses by youth activists. So here you hear from Nadia Nazar. She's the co-executive director of Zero Hour and Lorena Sosa, director of operations with Zero Hour. Both of them offer some advice on how businesses should be uh, handling and, and interacting with youth and, and what they can do to really get a move on when it comes to net zero. I think it's really important to acknowledge that a lot of corporations are even the cause of this crisis and have been constantly emitting fossil fuels, playing into the causes of this crisis. And not only that, but sharing perhaps like misinformation or not um, boosting information about climate change and other social ju justice issues, but kind of um, censoring that that content and that information that's educating people all around the world. And so I, I really think that businesses need to, to listen to people, listen to indigenous organizers, black organizers, those who are in the movement working and really see what they can do, you know, connect with with communities and make sure you're not like taking advantage of people. We have a term that we um, use like greenwashing or youth watch washing, where you try to use young people to kind of market that you're sustainable when you're really not. So, you know, really making sure that you're meeting those sustainable requirements. How are you not only are you how are you not only like stopping to like pollute and stopping to contribute to the crisis, but what are you doing to actually help the movement that's trying to solve this issue in time? I would definitely say that if you're a corporation watching this, you need to start investing in research and development. Public, like within our public sector, we only invest $22 billion a year, which is a very small fraction compared to the $600 billion that we spend in military spending. And you also really need to start listening to those that work for you. Of course, you have your exec board that's important, right? But you need to start listening to your workers and their experiences within the workforce, especially if you're a group that like a large sustainable corporation, your values really need to be centered towards justice at the moment. And by the way, that session was expertly facilitated by our colleague, Green Biz uh, senior editor, Deanna Anderson. Absolutely, indeed. I have one more clip. And it is from Lucas Joppa, the chief environmental officer with Microsoft. And he was uh, in interview with uh, Akshat Rati, the uh, great reporter at Bloomberg. I've read his column for many years and I was excited to see him doing this moderation. So Lucas uh, had a lot of very uh, intriguing and, and thought provoking <laughs> comments to make. And here he talks about the difference between avoided emissions and carbon removal and why it really matters for achieving net zero. So here's Lucas Chapa. We don't have a shared definition of what net zero means uh, at the organizational versus the, the global level. And part of it is because of this difference between avoided emissions and carbon removal. And so because we don't have that, uh, that shared definition of what net zero means, it means that we have dysfunctional markets as well. And you mentioned somebody would go and buy an, uh, a carbon offset and use that to zero out their carbon ledger of their organization's carbon books. And the thing is, is that not all offsets are created equal. Not all avoided emissions offsets are created equal. And paying somebody to not emit carbon is not the same as removing carbon. But they are sold 
as the same asset. And that's a problem because it's cheaper to pay somebody not to do something generally than it is to pay somebody to do something. And because of that, we are not accelerating one aspect of the offset market, the carbon removal aspect, anywhere nearly as quickly as we should, because why would an organization, unless they were you know, extremely committed like Microsoft is, why would an organization go out and pay more for an identical outcome? And that is one of the biggest things that I think that we have to work our way through is to differentiate the pricing on the asset that's actually being accredited or sold in the quote unquote carbon offset markets. Well, thanks for those, Heather. And as always, we'll be posting full videos of those sessions on greenbiz.com in the next couple of weeks. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish seven of them every week. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to learn more about them. We love your comments, your questions, your tips. You can hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.